Hi, this is Tanya Domi. Welcome to The Thought Project, recorded at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, fostering groundbreaking research and scholarship in the arts, social sciences, and sciences. In this space, we talk with faculty and doctoral students about the big thinking and big ideas generating cutting-edge research, informing New Yorkers and the world. Julie Souk is Dean for Master's Programs and Professor of Sociology at the Graduate Center, CUNY. She is a scholar of comparative law and society with a focus on women in comparative constitutional law. She is most well known for her recent work on renewed efforts to ratify the Equal Rights Amendment for Women in light of the theory and practice of gender equality provisions in constitutions around the world. So, Dean Souk, welcome to the Thought Project podcast. Thank you. So this is an interesting time to uh, have a conversation with you, Dean Souk, because it would seem that the revival of the Equal Rights Amendment uh, to prohibit sex discrimination uh, could not occur at a more fortuitous moment in American history um, in view of uh, a number of events that have taken place since 2017, the largest demonstration by uh, any human beings, but in this case, women in the United States after the inauguration of Donald Trump, and and then, of course, being accompanied by the rise of the Me Too moment. And so what are your thoughts about this moment and what it could bear potentially for the adoption of an Equal Rights Amendment? Well, I think that after the election of Donald Trump, uh, and particularly because uh, some of the remarks that he made in the campaign um, that were misogynistic, I think women mobilized in very uh, unprecedented and surprising ways uh, around uh, women's rights and women's empowerment, uh, broadly speaking. And the ERA was one of the things uh, that was on the agenda of the Women's March. And I think since then, because of the rise of the Me Too movement, there's a general sense that whatever law and politics that we currently have, uh, it's not really working for women, and we need something more. And a constitutional amendment, one that has been in our uh, political and legal imaginary since 1923, uh, and has never really gone away, Uh, that constitutional amendment has a a new interest and a new discourse. And so I I do think that this is a moment in which women are mobilizing uh, in favor of change. Yes, and he just seems to be doubling down on on the, the issues of how he sees and portrays and talks about women. I mean, just today in the New York Times, his comments uttered yesterday on Twitter calling a woman... Uh, with the appearance of a horse face. Uh, It's just not only uh, undignified, but this this intent to insult over and over again, I think will will serve as a continued impetus for for social change and, and demand for women's equity and dignity, quite frankly. Yeah, and I do think that uh, part of the problem is uh, the media and the discourse around women. Uh, but I think uh, the what's really driving our, our interest in change uh, is not just what Donald Trump is saying about women, but the underlying realities uh, for most ordinary women in America. 
that is the pay gap, uh, the lack of protections for pregnant women in the workplace, uh, the lack of support for child rearing, uh, which unfortunately today is a responsibility despite uh, the legal guarantee uh, of non-discrimination on grounds of sex, the responsibility for child rearing tends to fall heavily on women and tends to cause their economic disadvantage and their lack of access to political power as well. I, I agree. And so in this is a, a great segue. You assert in your article published in the Yale Journal of Law and Feminism last year that the elevation of judicial review uh, to strict scrutiny standard would not effectively address post-industrial problems that confront women in the 21st century. Why not? So the problem with strict scrutiny, I think, uh, in our constitutional law of equality, uh, strict scrutiny refers to the test by which judges, when they see a classification, typically a racial classification, um, they assume that that classification and the law in which that classification is used is illegitimate. Uh, unless there is a compelling state justification or a compelling state interest uh, that's driving the use of that classification. And of course, the, this test was created uh, in the context of classifications being used uh, to disadvantage racial minorities, uh, and specifically racial segregation. Uh, but uh, Today, uh, the use of strict scrutiny uh, in the equal protection context in race cases is used equally uh, to scrutinize affirmative action and policies that are designed uh, to uh, promote the equality of uh, disadvantaged racial minorities in various contexts. So if you analogize that now to the uh, sex equality context, one concern is that if you use strict scrutiny uh, to scrutinize all gender-based or sex-based classifications in public policy or law, um, it can be used by judges to strike down measures that are taken um, at the state legislative level uh, to actually promote women's equality. And I'll give you an example um, hmm. of something that's come up, and it's come up in very big ways over constitutional crises in Europe uh, in decades earlier, uh, the question of uh, women's representation on corporate boards. Uh, in uh, California at the moment. That's uh, right. There's, there, there's, there's an legislation, yes. right, uh, that would require publicly traded companies to have at least one woman, right? And that's a version, although, a, you know, a perhaps less ambitious version of uh, gender quotas laws that uh, were passed in Europe in the late 1990s, or yes. actually dating back earlier if you look yes. at some civil service uh, laws. But there were laws uh, that said that corporate boards uh, had to have um, at least 40% uh, women, or I think technically they're framed so that you can't exceed 60% uh, one sex uh, on a publicly traded company's board. Uh -huh. and, and those laws, actually, they, they date to the um, early 2000s, uh, but the earlier versions had to do with representation of um, women on political party lists for uh, elected office. Uh, I, I actually was involved in that effort in Bosnia where we adopted a, qu a quota. <laughs> one third, Wonderful. Yeah. One third of the ballot would be evenly distributed. Yes. In the case of Bosnia. Great. But it's very common in Europe now yes. that both in the political context and the corporate board context, there are laws uh, that say that you can't have uh, that you can't exceed 60 percent one sex 
uh, in terms of representation on boards or candidates uh, for political office. Okay, that's a good point. I just and never thought the about California, that. Yeah. And the California law now, I mean, that there, there are threats of constitutional challenges, and the constitutional challenges would come from constitutional guarantees of equality, uh, which have been judicially interpreted both on the federal level as well as the state level, notwithstanding the fact that there are also state ERAs that explicitly speak to sex. But all of these constitutional provisions that are interpreted to or explicitly prohibit sex discrimination, if you use strict scrutiny, it does mean that you're strictly scrutinizing things like gender quotas that are designed uh, to promote women Uh, in areas where they have been underrepresented. I see. That's a really good point. Let's go back to the pay equity issue and childbearing. Um, A few states now have paid family leave, Mm -hmm. uh, as we were discussing before we started. I I just think that this is one of the biggest gaps that confront women Mm -hmm. and families in America, And, and it definitely affects women's earnings. Mm-hmm. And to uh, when they retire, they're going to retire with much less money, even though, according to mortality tables, women live longer uh, on yes. average. So this really compounds women in their in their senior years. It compounds the quality of their life. Um, these are some of the biggest issues that I have seen. Uh, while I do not have children, I've had many colleagues that do, mm-hmm. and. You know what happens to people in and out of the workforce, and then the lost opportunities for advancement, these kinds Mm -hmm. of issues that really complicate women's economic um, earnings and well-being over the course of their life. Uh, Talk about how the ERA, the new reimagined ERA that you talk about in the article, how that would be addressed. So as... The the ERA that we're now currently really talking about is the ERA that was uh, adopted in 1973. Right. Uh, And that's the ERA that just says that equality of rights uh, shall not be abridged or denied on account of sex uh, by the state or or by the United States or any um, place subject to its jurisdiction, right? And um, and so that version of the ERA would just prohibit sex discrimination by the state. Uh, And what that means, uh, it it would not require uh, any form of maternity leave. Uh, And so I don't think that the ERA would directly, we we, we wouldn't, let's say that we had a 38th state that ratified the ERA. Right. Uh, It wouldn't mean that we get paid family leave for for women or men or or really for anyone um, tomorrow. So it wouldn't quite work like that. Uh, But um, the, the problem that I was pointing you to a moment ago, which is that anytime you distinguish treat women better in the law, that's going to be uh, thought to be problematic under any guarantee of uh, sex discrimination. Uh, So there is a little bit of that problem um, as women try to get pregnancy protections in the workplace. The law right now, um, statutory uh, federal law, just prohibits discrimination against pregnant women but doesn't require special accommodations of pregnant. For their situation. That's right. unique to their sex. Right. Uh, but pregnant. when we say that pregnancy discrimination is prohibited, uh, what the law means by that is that uh, pregnant women should not be treated worse than other people 
similarly situated in their ability or inability to work. I see. So these are some of the problems. Now, I think that because we talk about equality of rights not being denied or abridged, uh, if uh, the government were to uh, enact legislation uh, trying to promote women's equality, uh, we might see that uh, much more easily uh, as a way of um, protecting gender equality as guaranteed by the Equal Rights Amendment, right? And so that's a legal problem that you could see uh, being resolved by the ERA that current equal protection law uh, doesn't address. I see. Uh, but p- what I'm saying is actually, I mean, it's really just a solution to a problem that was created by Supreme Court jurisprudence over many years, strictly limiting Congress's ability to enforce sex equality or to pr- actually promote gender equality under Section 5 of the 14th Amendment. Uh, and so what I think the ERA can do about a lot of these issues, it's not a magic bullet that's going to create a public policy solution. Uh, but I think that the most valuable thing it could do is create a politics and reinforce the politics that uh, of women's organizing uh, that could then open up a new legal space. Because the Supreme Court that we have and will continue to have um, has written a lot of jurisprudence that actually makes it very hard uh, for Congress or even the states to promote uh, women's equality. Uh, and uh, given that we have a law that makes it hard to do that, having a new amendment uh, with a new understanding of Congress's enforcement powers uh, can actually open up more political possibility. And I think that's the best thing that the ERA can do for us so right now. So it would, in essence, create a political space that would allow women to articulate and advance mm-hmm. policies uh, that would address how they live and work. Absolutely. Okay, very good. So in your article, you also point to examples of France and Germany updating their constitutions in the 1990s as examples of how Europe arguably has some of the best legal standards, which are which are based on the European Convention on Human Rights and the jurisprudence that is generated through the, the Court on Human Rights. Well, no, actually, um, the, the, the Court on Human Rights has its own jurisprudence. Uh, drawing on uh, its provisions. But the constitutional traditions that I'm pointing to are not derivative okay. of those okay, uh, fair traditions. Enough. And I, also the, the more advanced gender equality law on these issues mm-hmm. uh, probably emanates not from the Court of Human, the, the European Court of Human Rights in Strasbourg, mm-hmm. uh, but from some of the jurisprudence around the Equal Treatment Directive of the Court of Justice of the European Union. Okay. And there, there's a little bit, I mean, so there are interesting links between the Court of Justice of the European Union and a dynamic it, between that, uh, that court and, and the, the German Constitutional Court and, the, um, and the, the, the constitutional courts of the German states, uh, the Lenda, uh, which are like sure. the, the states within the federated system. Okay. So, but given that, that they did update it, as, I, as we talked about earlier, um, they really do. Germany and France and the Netherlands and mm-hmm. the Scandinavian countries all have extremely advanced family public policy with re- with with respect to uh, paternal and maternal leave and yeah. topping off the government top, topping off employers. Uh, salary agreements when you're out of the job and you're on leave. Canada does that. Canada tops mm-hmm. off your your salary mm-hmm. as well so that you hit 
approximately at least 90% of what you were making before you were out on leave. Um, I mean, these are, again, these are the big, big issues. We're seeing it happening in the United States. Mm -hmm. There's like about five states now, I believe, five Mm -hmm. states that have paid family leave. How do you think passing the ERA would inform that movement, for example? So I think it's actually, as a legal and policy matter, the relationships are quite complicated. But I think in some ways what the ERA can do is simple uh, in that I think it's bringing political voice to mm-hmm. um, all of the causes of women's disadvantage, right? Uh, in Europe right now, I mean, you're, you're, you're right that um, there are these very developed social welfare states. Uh, and they have some connection, at least in some of the countries, although not all, uh, to the constitutional law of gender equality. Uh, because in Europe, and this is a subject of um, more recent work that I've done since I wrote the article about the ERA okay. uh, that you read, uh, but in Europe, um, I trace the constitutional history of some of those provisions guaranteeing um, explicitly equality between men and women. So in Germany, for example. Um, that actually dates to the German constitution uh, at Weimar in 1919, um, where they first introduced equality of rights between men and women. And what's very interesting uh, in the German case uh, is that uh, that provision was advocated for by women who were part of the constitution-making process right after women got the vote. So in a lot of European countries, there are actually founding mothers as well as founding fathers. And I use uh, of the Constitution. And I use the term founding mothers um, pretty deliberately in that what was also going on in many of these constitutions at the time, and it's something that I mention uh, in the ERA article as well, is that many European constitutions, including the German and the French and the Italian and many others, uh, in addition to protecting equality of the sexes, also contains a provision saying that motherhood deserves the special protection of the state. And it's really that provision and not the equality provision that becomes mm-hmm. the foundation, that becomes the constitutional legal foundation of many social welfare initiatives, including maternity leave. And of course, many of these countries had maternity leave, no paternity leave, but only maternity leave, which from the standpoint of modern sex equality law uh, is sex discrimination. If you just have maternity leave and, and you don't not, have not paternity right. leave, that's sex discrimination. But of course, originally... Uh, women uh, in, who were constitution makers in Germany in 1919 and then after World War II in both Germany and France uh, and Italy, many other European countries, they advocated for both. Uh, and this is an interesting paradox for us, that they advocated for both equality uh, without discrimination on grounds of sex, uh, equality between men and women, and special protection of mothers that is uh, by the state. That is interesting. Well, also the Germans really, I think, stand out. I mean, it was a German socialist who uh, founded International Women's Day as a way to bring mm-hmm. attention to uh, the situation of women and girls. And this is a day that is really observed throughout Europe, um, mostly mostly originally in the Eastern European countries, but, but now more broadly. So it's an interesting cultural custom that has emanated in in Europe. Um, I would also, so I want to come back to the United States for a moment. Mm-hmm. In recent years, the EEOC has interpreted uh, the Title VII application to issues related to, for example, transgender persons mm-hmm. uh, under sex <coughs> discrimination. And this 
kind of, I think it shows, it indicates that there's an evolution of the law, interpretation of the law mm-hmm. and the application of it. Um, I believe that there's a case going to the Supreme Court on this. I think I saw something on a docket recently about mm-hmm. Title VII interpretation, and I'm, I'm somewhat concerned about it, given uh, the most recent addition to the court. Uh, what are your thoughts on the EEOC interpretations and how Title VII's been applied under the 1964 Civil Rights Act? Well, uh, it's a very interesting history in terms of the inclusion of sex as a category of prohibited discrimination in Title VII of the Civil Rights Act. Uh, that the story that's often told uh, is that sex was included as an effort to kill. Uh, Title VII, which was primarily uh, growing out of the civil rights movement concerned with uh, race discrimination. Yeah, by the segregationists in Congress. Right. So, uh, but of course, then we did get a prohibition of sex discrimination. And the jurisprudence that you get um, around uh, sex discrimination uh, ends up being influenced by race discrimination uh, law. And so uh, the idea of uh, sex stereotyping, right, Uh, treating some... uh, Uh, applying generalizations um, about the sex uh, to uh, a woman, uh, that that becomes prohibited. And I think once you start down that path of really focusing on um, the the need to treat everyone the same uh, and not apply stereotypes uh, in the workplace uh, or in other contexts, uh, that then um, Title VII or the, the prohibition of sex discrimination in the workplace really comes to be seen as an individual right not to have other people impose uh, an identity uh, on you and that everyone should be treated uh, roughly the same, right? And this is one vision of discrimination law, which I think is in tension with uh, another way of understanding what sex discrimination law is about. Uh, that sex discrimination law, and in fact, race discrimination law, is not really about individuals' rights to be free from generalization. Mm-hmm. That's one vision of it. Um, and it's a vision that I think is very um, resonant uh, with a very individualistic understanding uh, of one's rights as a worker uh, in the workplace. Uh, but another way of understanding discrimination law is that it's really about groups, uh, that it's about groups like women Um, who have been systematically, by the way that jobs have been designed, by the way that we not just have generalizations about individuals, but a whole social structure designed around the assumption that women don't work and are, in fact, uh, primarily responsible for child-rearing, that we have all these social structures uh, and institutions that are designed around those assumptions. Uh, And so if you think that sex discrimination law or any kind of guarantee of equality is a way of undoing uh, those oppressive social structures, then you're going to need something that's much more than um, uh, being free from from generalization. And sometimes you might actually need to use generalizations in order to undo the structures uh, that entrench those generalizations. That's very interesting. I think that's very interesting. I just want to say one more more thing about the politics of the moment. We now see that uh, women running principally in the Democratic Party more than double the number mm-hmm. of candidates for office that have won their primaries about. Uh, it's very significant. It's dramatic. And uh, the idea that many of these women, we hope, will be elected um, and they'll take uh, they'll take their place in 
the House and a high hope in the Senate, um, that there's going to be more attention paid by the mere fact of their presence. There is political science, you know, studies, social science studies that show that the higher the level of representation, once you reach one third more of a body representative in a body of of legislators are going to have significant impact and we already see women having significant impact by virtue of their political activism let alone taking a formal role of power to legislate mm-hmm. this will be an interesting moment to see what happens um after the elections yeah i mean i i'm i am curious to see what happens although i don't think i mean I think women's representation makes a huge difference because if, as long as we live in a world in which people uh, want to continue to reproduce, uh, it is true that unless you actually figure out uh, a system uh, for allocating duties uh, that's not gendered, uh, it, that, that basically one of the problems, one of the ex- explanations for why women are so underrepresented is not just sexism. Uh, but that the the fact that caregiving falls primarily on women ends up making it so that as a practical matter, it's very hard for women, especially women who are mothers, uh, to uh, put themselves uh, in leadership positions. Uh, and I think so then there's this other dynamic by which if you end up having um, political uh, bodies uh, or corporate boards or whatever mm-hmm. it is um, with at least 40 or 50 percent women, uh, that maybe because then so many people in that body um, have child care responsibilities um, or need some kind of arrangement that you're going to see the institutional practices uh, around those organizations change. But I don't think um, that's that one thing necessarily follows from another. I think a lot of work has to be done. I mean, it's also true uh, that a large percentage of white women uh, voted for Trump. Um, and it's also true that the the original fights that we had um, about ERA ratification in the late 1970s, um, it wasn't uh, conservative or misogynistic men who defeated the ERA. It was organizing by Phyllis Schlafly. Yes. Uh, and a I'm lot of women. I'm intimately familiar with her. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, uh, and I, I do think that one of the difficulties is that uh, we women uh, in America are very diverse uh, and very diverse uh, in their understandings of what should happen uh, on these issues uh, affecting I violence I, against women, affecting uh, women in the workplace, and protections for uh, motherhood and child rearing. True, uh, but this is also principally Democrats on the Democratic mm-hmm. side that have an agenda that's quite different from the Republican side on these Mm -hmm. issues specifically. So it's going to be a contestation without a doubt, even even when they're elected. So I I agree. I mean, Phyllis Schlafly is uh, someone who uh, brought Elaine Donnelly into the military battle. She was a part of the Schlafly coterie. And uh, she's she's somebody I I personally had to take on uh, in many of the work, a lot of the work that we did on women in the military and women in combat, et cetera. So anyway, but the last question I do have for you that is um, it uh, we are going to digress for a moment and talk Mm -hmm. about your role as the the Mm -hmm. dean of the master's programs at the Graduate Center. Um, Can you tell us about 
some of your priorities uh, as you oversee these growing number of programs and really interesting ones, including cognitive neuroscience mm-hmm. and data visualization and analysis. These are really interesting master's programs at this point in, in, uh, in the academy. Yes, absolutely. So I'm really excited to join the Graduate Center um, as the new dean for master's programs because while the Graduate Center has always been this um, amazing place for research and research uh, in areas that are closely aligned with CUNY's uh, public mission uh, of uh, bringing together access to education and excellence. And I think master's programs are a very important space uh, with regard to access. Uh, because, uh, as well as the public impact that our research can have here at the Graduate Center, because we're educating people um, who may or may not continue into careers uh, in academia, may or may not even aspire to careers in academia. Uh, And so you're going to have a much more diverse set of people uh, with regard to their career aspirations. Uh, And I think that is also going to diversify uh, the uh, social backgrounds of the people coming into the Graduate Center, uh, and also will create an opportunity um, for us to teach as faculty uh, people who are going to take the research into many, many different um, areas uh, of life. And then in the emerging fields where we have new programs, the cognitive neuroscience uh, program, uh, there's really nothing like it uh, really in the country. Uh, right now, uh, where they're bringing together psychology and biology and studying really interesting topics like what is the brain doing uh, when you uh, are focusing on things or distracted by things. Um, And um, we have a data science program uh, where we're really at the cutting edge of things like machine learning, um, artificial intelligence. And I think these programs Uh, are going to prepare a very diverse uh, group of new students um, for um, many new and exciting careers, and I hope uh, train them in ways uh, that make them reflective um, about the ethical dimensions of fast technological change, uh, including um, who owns data, uh, who has access. These are very big questions facing our society right now. So my priorities um, are to uh, connect with these students, uh, make sure they're learning the material and thinking uh, uh, in a huge publicly-minded way uh, about uh, the materials that they're uh, encountering, uh, and also really supporting uh, their career aspirations uh, and supporting their ability to uh, make a difference and work for positive uh, social change. Well, thank you very much. the the issues about sex discrimination and the and and we hope a new ERA will be adopted, not a new one. It's the the one from nineteen seventy three, and we should have you back to talk about that, and uh, and of course keep us up to date on on the new master's programs and and how it's being there's increased enrollment and this is very exciting time at the graduate center. Thank you. So thanks for tuning in to The Thought Project, and thanks to our guest, Dean Julie Souk of the Graduate Center, CUNY. The Thought Project is brought to you with production, engineering, and technical assistance by Sarah Fishman. I'm Tanya Domi. Tune in next week.